0: This is Purple Radio On Demand. the Purple Radio Arts Show. Hello everyone, you're listening to Purple's weekly arts show. I'm Lim. The arts show covers arts and culture events at the university, including interviews with fellow student artists and reviews of events within and beyond Durham. We hope to bring you closer to the arts in a time when it is harder to be physically present. As it is Trans Awareness Week, today's show will have reviews of the film Tendrin, which was recommended by DU Film and Television's Film Club, as well as Disclosure, which was screened for a DU Labour Club's watch-along session. It is also Nightline Awareness Week. Nightline is an anonymous and confidential listening service for Durham students. They run all night from 9pm to 7am autumn. We have a review that looks at themes of mental health issues, of eating disorders and toxic friendships, on Sideline Productions' Hostage by Francesca Hayden-White. First, we have Florence reviewing Tangerine. Hello all!
1: Um, so Durham University Film and TV Society recently screened the film Tangerine to celebrate transgender awareness this week, and to continue their November theme of queerness on film. Um, so, I obviously wrote a review for it. Um, Tangerine is an American comedy-drama film, directed by Sean Baker and co-written by himself and Chris Burgock, um, a previous and frequent collaborator with Baker, has worked on films with him like The Florida Project and Starlet. Baker coincidentally lived not too far from the most prominent locations at which the film was shot, such as Santa Monica and Highland in Hollywood. The film was released in 2015 for the Sundance Film Festival and garnered much critical acclaim for its representation of transgender individuals. So firstly, the plot, as there is so much wonderful cinematography going on in this film, the plot will definitely be the shortest part of my review. So a sex worker called Cindy, portrayed portrayed by the newcomer of Katana, Kiki Rodriguez, who has recently been released from a short stint in prison, finds out through her best friend, Alexandra acted by the more reserved Maya Taylor, that her boyfriend and pimp has been cheating on her. Cindy, in her anger, makes it her mission to not only hunt down Chester, as he's so called, but also the woman he had been seeing most recently. Whilst this is the main plot, the film also features some subplots, and subplots happen to be my favourite parts of films, as it follows Alexandra on a normal day of work for her, as well as an Armenian cab driver, Mazmekh his experiences in the busting world of Los Angeles, and his own familial situation. So lots to unpack stylistically. Um, Tangerine has garnered a lot of attention because of its decision to use an iPhone 5S, due to budgetary reasons mostly, but it has also been for good reason artistically overall. Um, The phone had been modified by an anamorphic adapter and by the app Filmic Pro to shoot the film. In my amateur attempt to uh, research these two devices, um, I've come to the conclusion that the adapter enhances the resolution of the image and of the detail by compressing the image horizontally, adjusting the scope ratio. The app, on the other hand, was used for similar ends to control the focus, aperture, colour temperature as well as capture video clips at higher bit rates. So the combination of the two alternatives to a film camera allowed a high quality compression of the shots, capturing the widescreen effectively on the phone and adding to the high quality resolution of the film itself. So this had the combined effect of making the camera work seem shaky and quick moving at times um but this is to be energetic and and highly animated so to match the fast-paced movements of Cindy's character and LA itself um so throughout the film uh, there are these cuts which you know either bookend one conversation or or exchange or serve to transition um swiftly to another part of the plot um and these are suddenly saturated with bright yellows oranges and reds um, but faithful to the title of the film there is a shade of orange is always present no matter what time of the day so it can be seen in the street lights in, in the sun's rays in the dawn of the day at the end of the day um, in the interior of the cafes, bars clubs um, and in the interior of Rasmick's family home um, so this means that this orange, um, this ambience of orange doesn't necessarily mean is isn't always associated with this warmth or um, comfort and, and homeliness, which, which I think it traditionally can be. I think here, um, orange can almost come across as quite glaring, especially when it comes becomes a little more yellow and um, almost metallic. Um, and I think that almost gives a sense of restlessness in this film um uh, restlessness uh, anxiety at times a little bit of instability um i almost think there's like a connection with you know how amber has this status obviously it's in the traffic but it is yeah almost um as a sign of hesitation obviously it's not great on traffic but um it is an in-between color um so i I think that's a very interesting um so, as orange is the predominant colour, and it's quite bright. This didn't make the film seem longer than it was. It was only an hour and a half, even though it is following the rhythm of a day in the life on Christmas day in l a um and for someone who associates the dark and short days, the cold and hopelessly expects snow or at least frost on Christmas, you think there just there might be just frost. This was a bit of a cultural shock, um, to see, um, but I think that, that adds to the buzzing nature of the film, that it, the day was extended. It was, it was exciting from start to finish. Um, so the soundtrack matches the film, scene to scene, um, according to the pervading emotions such as the longing we see in Alexandra's delicate performance of Doris Day's Toyland on stage in a rather empty bar, um, such as the excitement, um and sadness of Cindy and the aggression of the film uh, with eclectic electronica tunes, and buzzing trap music. Um, So there's not to say that there was no moment to breathe. In fact, the quieter scenes when it's just dialogue or the soundtrack is just a long held synth note over what anyone is saying, are when this unexpected sense of intimacy of shooting everything on a phone actually becomes clear. Um, corresponding to the closeness, for example, between the two main characters. Um, I found it staggering how this utilisation of the phone could convey this gentleness in the film, but at the same time highlight the more graphic nature of other scenes, such as the uh, the intimate encounters between other characters. So regarding the acting, I thought... Rodriguez and Taylor were professional actors watching this. Um, but after doing more research, it turns out they were both fairly new to the acting scene. Rodriguez, um, just the flick of her eyes, could portray such, you know, such as this heartache at the betrayal she'd she been dealt at the start of the film. Um, and she is, throughout the film, she is subjected to a fair amount of disappointment and, and humiliation by, by more than one person whilst Taylor, like I said, powerfully imbued a sense of this this plaintiveness in her singing, whilst being more reserved for the majority of the film. So it came a bit of a surprise to me. Um, before shooting, um, Baker had met them outside a Los Angeles LGBT centre, and after having chosen them to play these characters, um, a lot of what Uh, ended up in the rather loose structure of the script originated from stories which Rodriguez, Taylor or other trans women who work in the areas had heard or personally experienced. Um, In fact, according to The Guardian, one of Rodriguez's foremost conditions, um, conditions before she accepted the role, was that the movie showed the harsh reality of what goes on out here and, and that these women are here because they have to be. And this film should be hilarious and entertaining for these women, as well as the larger audience. So on reflection, Baker realised the importance of this principle um, being laid down, um, this principle of wanting something that would present these characters to mainstream audiences in a pop culture way, so that they could identify with them. Um, obviously, I've quoted there. Um so I think with the utilisation of such a candid means as an iPhone and, and this this focus in mind, this condition was fulfilled, um, the characters, not just the main ones, were lovable and um, complex and diverse um, in representation and in personality. Um, at the same time, the weird rolling shots of the urban landscapes of LA, you know, in Rasmic's car, Um, through his windows, streets, you are confronted with a grittier and rather ruthless reality of Tinseltown, Um, the various exchanges that um, occur there in the blind spots. Um, One almost understands the nonchalant and desensitised behaviour of the only two people playing figures of authority, um, which are two cops snacking in their car, Um, So quick props to the costume design as well. This was also really effective as it told a fair bit about the two main characters different personalities and their dynamic as well. Um, Cindy with this mane-like wig to match her fiery personality and Alexandra wearing more subtle colours of purples, browns and reds in her wardrobe. Um, and what I really liked about the film was that it explored the internal and external worlds of all the characters, obviously. Um, the film A lot of it is visual, external, what you see, um, but I think two worlds are created, especially um, as the phone camera finds its way into various different cultural domestic settings, such as Rasmus' flat, um, and you get to see his family, um, all, sat, all sat down there. I think that's the only family scenario you, you see um, in that calm state, I guess, uh, celebrating Christmas with a dinner and presents and a tree. When you, That's sort of the few moments where you see Christmas decoration in the film, really. So the film does go through a lot of drama and tension, and it is continuous right up until the end, um, as um, there, are, there is a moment of um, harassment. Uh, which Cindy uh, unfortunately experiences by people she had expected to be her clients. Um, so even when this film had made it into the mainstream, I think there is this point that comes at the end of the film, that in its ending scene, which reveals that much is still left to be done regarding the recognition and rights of the transgender culture and society. And uh, that's all from me, folks.
0: Hi, I'm Lim. I'll be discussing my thoughts on watching Disclosure. On Thursday night, DU Labour Club hosted a watch-along session of Disclosure on Netflix for Trans Awareness Week. Disclosure is a documentary about trans representation in film and television by leading trans thinkers and creatives such as Laverne Cox, Lily Wachowski, Jens Ford, MJ Rodriguez, Jamie Clayton and Ches Bono. Disclosure looks at the stereotypes and tropes of trans people that have been presented to audiences on films through the decades. Since most people don't know trans people in their lives, media is the primary way through which they gain their understanding and assumptions about trans people, and that is how most trans people see depictions of themselves as well, since they are unlikely to know trans people early in their lives either. In recent years, there's been a proliferation of trans and non-binary people on screen. But whereas a small number of people have increased um, visibility on such platforms, the majority of people still suffer. So disclosure was uncomfortable to watch for me. I think when it comes to like statistics and data, I know theoretically you know, about the huge amount of violence against trans people, about the policies that are made in education, in public health institutions and judicial settings. For instance, this week, school LGBT bullying projects were axed by the UK government. But what does this actually mean? I think Disclosure tries to show us a history of narratives, or a historical narrative about trans people that has been painted in the media and how this interacts with the lives of real people. The increase in visibility of trans bodies and trans identities in media could be a good thing by even letting people know of their existence in the first place. But at the same time, media up to now perpetuates harmful stereotypes. And these images affect how trans people see themselves when it is often, especially in the past, the only way that they can access representations of themselves. Um, it was upsetting to hear the way these trans creators see themselves in media. And I think there is such a fundamental lack of empathy or consideration for trans people that allows these films to even be made. And it's even more notable that these are the very actors and producers who are involved in some of the shows that are discussed. When these actors talk about, you know, always being given the role of sex worker one, sex worker two, and they're like, what other roles can I get? And they are more directly involved in this industry than anyone else. And it's not just, you know, they live this in their real lives and then they go on screen and they have to act in this certain way as well. And I think it's just very eye-opening to hear their perspective. And... When the visual history of trans people on screen is compiled together in this documentary, it really made me realise that harmful assumptions or comments that are uttered in daily life, they don't come out of nowhere. It comes from this, there's this large body of content that is consumed. It is, the cu- you know, the culture is the air that we live in. And it made me even more annoyed to think about recent transphobic um, so-called discourse about trans people being dangerous in bathrooms or being psychopaths like J.K. Rowling's book, it's it's not just a coincidence or people being sensitive, it is this continuous perpetuation of a narrative that has been insisted on for decades, if not centuries. And I'm a bit, you know, tired of seeing everything being about the discourse when it has such a real impact on people's lives. I think what discourse... I mean, dis- disclosure, sorry. I think disclosure does a good job in threading this broader history together in in such a compelling way, and I find it so uncomfortable to watch because it is so violent, often quite literally physically violent on screen, but also the violent erasure of the humanity of trans people, by often positioning trans bodies as merely sensational plot reveals, or transgressive appearances that induce horror or repulsion. And Disclosure reminds us again and again how we interact with media in this loop or this cycle of feedback. Our cis-normative society shapes discourse in such a way that causes media to seek out certain responses from its audience, because obviously media often just seeks to get a certain response out of people. And this media then teaches us how to respond to trans people by reinforcing and building on these stereotypes. So, I guess what especially stands out about trans people in media is the visibility of it, um... I guess that's why it's so significant to see um, a documentary about their representation in film and TV, that people who are outwardly different from mainstream societal norms, they are more vulnerable for the same reasons that make them more prominent in, in the public eye. And in today's highly visual culture, trans people's bodies are broken down and dehumanised for consumption by an audience in a way that's even more widespread than before. Um, I While this... Disclosure, it, it focuses on film and TV, but in, I think in our present time, this extends to social media as well. There are so many trans public figures who have social media accounts, and that makes them more accessible to people's hateful comments or intrusive questions. Like, part of Disclosure showed how interviews with trans actors and public figures on TV often focus on their surgeries, their genitals, their body parts, and it's all in the name of educating people because um, the hosts often say, if you don't tell the audience, they won't know. Which, yeah, we do need to educate people, but if all your education is just about this short operation that fulfills a cis audience's curiosities and fantasies, and not the actual trans people and their actual life, which is so much more than just that short operation, then it's not really an education, is it? And I guess watching this bit of the documentary also reminded me of the social media accounts of trans public figures that I've been following recently. um, I've seen stuff about how some people, some commenters seem to think that because these are public figures, they have put themselves, and more often their bodies, forward for everyone to inspect and question. And there are people who think it's fair game for everyone to ask about their genitals, about parts of someone's life that you would never feel entitled to ask of cis people. Um, yeah, I just think if a lot of this you just would not ask people these questions if if you respected them and if you drew boundaries instead of seeing these people as like some kind of object for for you to examine. And now that media representation extends to social media as well, I think, uh, like I said, this wasn't really the focus of disclosure because um, that focus on the big screens of film and TV, but I think social media allows people to access real trans people, perhaps for more genuine understanding. And I think many, but many of um, the assumptions that center cis experiences or that make trans people some mere object of entertainment or even education, um, this still very much informs how people interact with social media as well. And it's something we really have to change. So as I was saying, disclosure really shows how the media and society interact. And how trans people are treated in this system. I think it is so important to have different narratives about trans people. At the same time, we need to see the social and historical realities that shape their lived experiences. For instance, the fact that um, trans characters in media are so often sex workers is not because of their transness or, or some perceived monstrosity, it's not because of them being trans, but rather because of their marginalised positions in society that have forced them into these positions. And I think we need to understand the humans in these realities and the reality that these humans face. But we also need narratives that go beyond just this transness of trans people and the same tired tropes that I've been talking about. So I guess that's something you have to work towards in the long term. But to me, Disclosure is a much-needed documentary because we need to examine past representation before we can create new representation. Um... And what I really hope to see is diverse and rich representations of trans people that respect their authenticity and humanity. And this extends beyond media representation as well. I think like what was said in the documentary, Like media is, is just a means to an end. Um, we don't just want to see people for the sake of it. We, we need real material changes in our policies and in the way that trans people are seen and treated in real life, because this is what feeds into media representation as well. And at the end of the day, we want good media representation so that trans people can live the lives that they deserve to live. live. So, yeah, in summary, Disclosure was a difficult watch for me personally. Um, It's quite uncomfortable to see like everything sort of compiled into uh, a documentary film. Um, but I think it is doing something really important. And I hope more people get to watch it, to understand these narratives that about trans people that we not only watch, but... Also interact with in real life, and and that we perpetuate ourselves. I think that was sort of like my most important takeaway from the film. is It's not just. It's, it's really about the nature of media, about the nature of art, um, how it, it is in a feedback, um, loop with our lives, and it's not like separate from us. And you don't just get to, um, do art as artists that that is just separated from from life. Like you, how to say like you don't you're not exempt from responsibility just because you say this is art um, I think it really shows um, the extent to which this is so deeply intertwined with social realities and I think when we present trans people on screen there is a responsibility towards the community towards the people that you are representing to present them in in a way that really respects them rather than you know what is often done in media is to titillate audiences and so I guess this sort of extends to like queer people in in media in general there's um often this concern that while we see more and more queer people in in media like is it done to um is it done to stimulate uh cishead audiences um expectations to fulfill their desires things like that um yeah and i just think it's something we really need to think about so I, I do recommend Disclosure a lot, and uh, I think it's really wonderful for DU Labour Club to have organized this um, watch-along session. And yeah, I do hope to see more societies in Durham engaging with Trans Awareness Week. Next, I'll be playing I Am Ha by Shia Diamond, a raw and powerful trans anthem which she wrote while in prison. To me, it is about how society turns its back on certain people, and how she lives her truth, her fullest life, in spite of this. Given that we wanted to produce content related to Trans Awareness Week, I thought I'd share more about this topic. Yesterday, on Friday 20th November, was Transgender Day of Remembrance, which honours the memory of trans people whose lives were lost in acts of anti-trans violence. It was started in 1999 by trans advocate Gwendolyn Ann Smith as a vigil to honour the memory of Rita Hester, a trans woman who was killed the year before. The week leading up to 20th November is Trans Awareness Week, which aims to raise visibility for the community and the issues that they face. Transgender youth face many challenges from sports to public restrooms to education and medical care, homelessness as well as societal discrimination and bullying. Over the past week, many resources have been shared online, whether by media forces like GLAD or by activists and content creators like Monroe Bergdorf and Alok on Instagram. I'm now sharing some of the information I've seen from these sources relating to violence and discrimination against trans people, which may be upsetting to some, so please prioritise your well-being and judge for yourself if you would like to continue listening. I will be sharing some welfare resources after this. In 2020, at least 350 transgender people have been killed globally, according to a news report that shows an increasing trend of anti-trans murders and violence. Out of this number, a staggering 98% of those murdered globally were trans women or trans feminine people, and people of colour made up 79% of those in the US. There is also a global recession of trans rights, as countries like Poland and Hungary move towards anti-LGBTQ policies. So earlier during my discussion of the film Disclosure, I mentioned that this week the UK government has ended funding dedicated to combat combating anti-LGBT bullying in schools. It has been reported that almost half of LGBT plus pupils in England do not feel safe at school and 4 in 10 UK LGBT teachers have experienced homophobia, biphobia or transphobia at work. So what could we do during Trans Awareness Week? I know it's, this week has just been over, but honestly, this applies all the time. Um, here's what I saw from Alok's Instagram. Participate in vigils online. Learn the names of lives lost this year at the hands of fatal violence. Listen to the stories of survivors. Know the importance of allyship, and understand the historical context. And share art that celebrates transgender resilience. So just to emphasize again, I found the information I've shared before this from trans activists and content creators online. Personally, mostly from Munro Bogdorf and Alok, but there are many others who are doing the crucial work of educating people. And I've gained a lot from diversifying my social media feed, so I do recommend that people do the same. If you would like to access further information and welfare resources at the university, you could look up Durham's LGBT plus association. Useful contacts for general mental health services include Durham Nightline, Samaritans and the University Counseling Service. I will also list a few of the helplines and resources listed on the LGBT Plus Association's website, which relate to transgender people specifically. There is Gender Intelligence, a trans youth work charity, Mermaids, which supports gender-diverse children and young people, Mindline Trans Plus, a mental health support helpline, and Gallup Trans Advocacy and Community Development Service, which offers confidential support and advice, just to name a few. So do consider checking out these... Um, organizations, and supporting them in whatever way you can. Um, so for this week, we wanted to produce content in relation to Trans Awareness Week, but this is by no means a single week that trans issues are confined to, and I think our show this week has just tried to center trans issues a bit more, and it's just a dialogue and process that must definitely be sustained in the long term, it's definitely not a one-off um, show thing that we're doing. Um, the LGBT Plus Association collaborates with Purple Radio to produce some really amazing content. Um, there is the podcast, The Gay Agenda, which can be found on Purple's on-demand platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also the live show, Gayborhood Watch, which runs from 9pm to 10pm every Monday. Um, last week, I listened to the first episode of The Gay Agenda, which had some really insightful discussions, including about racialized dating preferences, um, the colonial roots of homophobia, cancel culture and so on. It's a very nice intersectional analysis of these issues and they brought in a lot of their own personal experiences as well. And as a Singaporean, I also found it really nice to hear a fellow Singaporean on the show because I felt I could relate to a lot of what was said, um, how I felt um, Singaporeans back home responded to Black Lives Matter in a way that was shocking to me and also about the colonial remnants of Penal Code 377A, which criminalises gay sex in Singapore. So overall, they discussed a lot of things that I've been thinking about, and much more, and it's really nice hearing their perspectives, and it's just a good listen on intersectionality and on a lot of issues. So do check it out on Purple Radio's on-demand streaming platforms, um, that's The Gay Agenda. Now for the next segment, Catherine will be reviewing Hostage. Hi, it's
2: Catherine here. Um, I'm deputy head of arts here at Purple and a first year English student at John's. Um, And today I'm gonna be talking about Francesca Hayden-White's new play, Hostage. Hostage is a two person play uh, written and directed by Francesca Hayden-White. And it was due to be performed in the assembly rooms, but due to new restrictions and lockdown, um, it had to be recorded instead. And the fact that the production team and cast were able to do this in just one day, I think, is very much testament to um, their talent and commitment, um, and is a remarkably impressive feat. Um, So yeah, just to let you know that uh, the show contains content concerning addiction, suicide, and eating disorders. uh, And I'll briefly be touching on some of these topics that occur in the play when I talk about it now. Um, But please see Sightline's social media for resources to support you. Um, I know there's a lot of information on their Facebook page. Um, So yeah and I'll reiterate this again later but uh, just to let you know that Hostage is available to stream from 7pm until Sunday the 22nd of November um, and tickets are available on the DST website. Hostage deals with issues and themes that are rarely depicted on stage um, and I think it's often hard to strike like a good balance between the lighter moments and the darker ones when you're dealing with this kind of content um so you know due to the nature of what the play explores um it is prone to feel kind of quite heavy um because you know it has to carry and sustain this significant um emotional burden and so when we kind of do encounter the lighter moments which um I mean, admittedly are kind of few and far between in this particular play but they do serve as a nice opportunity to um well not so much as to take a break but more of a um like a chance to I don't know just roll your shoulders a little and let some tension out um and I think those shades the the light and the dark um yeah they're they're just really good to, to have in, in a play like um like this of this nature um so yeah and i think also being a two-person play um so uh the fact that uh, so 15 and 25 year old summer um so essentially one character but just at two different stages in her life um it essentially means that much of the play is comprised of monologues um that are directed to the audience um which is very immersive um and and often fairly intense um you know they're confessional um sometimes reflective um introspective as well um and you know they're actually um in the script there there are some really nice lines that um do actually stick out and stick with you um I think I probably preferred the more simple unadorned lines personally as opposed to the more kind of experimental kind of cliche ones but um, there is a nice mix between kind of those more straightforward in delivery and those featuring more defamiliarized description. There's a really interesting um, interview uh, on DST First Night actually where Francesca talks about the creative process behind the show um, and there's also uh, actually some really beautiful artwork by shadow director Anna Pycock I think um, which is based on Um, some quotes in the play and and themes of the play as well Um, and actually I'd (laughs) really recommend checking that out Um, but in it amongst other things Francesca talks about why she named the show Hostage Um, and so uh, by dictionary definition um, a hostage is kind of a person that's seized or held um, as security for the fulfilment of a condition Um, and I think this specifically is something really interesting to bear in mind uh when watching the play so in her interview francesca talks about um how you kind of feel like a hostage in your own body and um indeed uh someone talks about this as well in the play um when it feels like your mind is kind of working against you and you're um you're stuck in a mentality that you can't escape um you know and uh I think in the play um someone talks about having to fight a battle on on two fronts as well so within herself and then um kind of against the judgment of uh the world around her um and i thought what was really interesting um about hostage and the definition of hostage and and that being kind of applied to the play is this idea of summer um you know our speaker and protagonist kind of being seized um which i think is like a, a very uh sort of charged verb, but being seized for the fulfilment of a condition. Um, and particularly um you know, as I keep saying, by the nature of it being a two person play of one person, by summer being seized by herself. So kind of in a theatrical sense that kind of distances itself distances itself from sort of like a a pretense of I don't know, realism or something. When older Summer and her younger self confront one another at the very end of the play. Um And I don't want to give too much away because I don't want to undermine, like, the impact of that exchange when you see it. Because I think it's probably one of the most kind of powerful moments in the play um, when you watch it. But, yeah, just, I think seeing the play through the prism of hostage and that definition um, really sort of adds, like, extra texture and and new layers um, to it. So, (laughs) The play has quite like a minimalistic setup um, and it makes really effective use of like black boxes for um, supplementing and supporting what the characters or character in this case i don't know um is saying uh, as well as just um, kind of using them just in an aesthetic sense like for levels and variation it looks really good as well um like those black boxes and um kind of the, the packages and kind of um the storage boxes they they have on stage, um, when they're you know stacked neatly, when they're strewn across the stage, they work really well um, in terms of representing kind of summer and her state too at various points um, in the play. Um, you know, it, it's really uh, I think the weight of the words, like summer's words, what she's saying, that is what both anchors um, and lifts up the play. Um, you know, nothing. Uh, kind of distracts or all takes away from, from what she's telling us, you know, and uh, speaking of which, credit to uh, Jennifer Lafferty and uh, Matilda Hubble, who played 25 and 15-year-old summer respectively, because, um, you know, they, they learnt their lines so well and, and they delivered them with such conviction, um, you know, especially in current circumstances with, you know, everything, like, so much is going on and um, I imagine rehearsals were somewhat more difficult with restrictions and lockdown um, because they did a fantastic job and (laughs) there are a lot of lines. um. So yeah I definitely recommend checking out Hostage um, and do also check out resources such as um, Durham Nightline is really good um, and Sightline Production Pages of course as I've already said Um, and they have information to um, kind of support you um, and redirect you if you uh, feel affected by any of this that we've spoken about um, or any of the topics in the play. Um, And tickets for the show are, uh, I've already said this as well, (laughs) but they're available uh, um, on the DST website um, and you can stream Hostage uh, from 7pm until Sunday the 22nd of November. Um, So yeah.
0: (laughs) Next, I'll be playing I Don't Want It At All by another trans artist, Kim Petras. That brings us to the end of the arts show today. You've been listening to Florence, Catherine and Lim. We tried to cover content relating to Trans Awareness Week as well as Nightline Awareness Week and I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you've missed any of the show and would like to catch up, it should be available on Purple's on-demand platforms tomorrow. As usual, we are always looking for people to come on our show to discuss anything arts-related, no matter what your passion is. And we now have an Instagram account. It's purple underscore radio underscore arts. So you can send us a message there. Contact us if you're interested in sharing about what you do with the Durham community. Also follow us on Instagram for further updates on our weekly shows as well as content on our drama channel. Tune in at the same time next week to discover more exciting content. We'll be bringing you more interviews and reviews. Purple Radio Podcasts.